Welcome to From the Heart with Daryl Underwood, pastor of Servant's Heart Chapel in Clovis, New Mexico. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by this week's sermon. Now here's Pastor Daryl. <clears throat> Acts chapter 9. You're going to experience a radical transformation in someone's life. Uh, history is full of uh, radical transformations due to God's intervention. Uh, before we get to the story of Saul, uh, there was a couple other ones in more modern times that I thought about. First up would be C.S. Lewis. Uh, in the 20th century, um, uh, a man who at one point was an avid atheist, did not believe in God at all, and endeavored to prove that Christianity was false. Uh, but in his uh, autobiographical work, uh, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis described how the Lord persistently closed in on him. He must picture, uh, he said, you must picture me alone. Night after night, feeling uh, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I had no desire to meet. And that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in, admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. That's what he wrote. C.S. Lewis wrote about his conversion. He, he did not want to believe in God. But reality had set in. He knew there was a God and he was held accountable to him. And I remember Rosaria Butterfield, more recent times. Our time currently, uh, years ago. Uh, tenured professor at a prestigious university, uh, a practicing lesbian and an avid atheist, and went about proving the Bible was false. And she said, my favorite line in the whole book, that conversion is too polite a word for the, the train wreck that occurs when one comes face to face with the living God. Turns your life absolutely upside down. And it makes sense. You have people that are going full-fledged, full force, full speed, like a runaway train right towards hell. And God steps in and derail, completely derails that force, that motion, that trajectory. And like any derailed train, it's going to be chaotic, isn't it? But then God writes it, writes us, and sets us in the right track, the right path. And there are some those who completely reject that path. In today's reading, for those of you that are following along in our daily Bible readings, Missy and I noticed that the, the, the verse picked for the meditation verse was God in Jeremiah, where God was telling the people of Judah, you know, trying to trying to get them to take his path. And he, and he assured them, if you take my path, 
you'll find peace. And they responded by saying, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take your path. And we have that. We have those who refuse. And then deal with all the pain and suffering that goes along with a life of sin. But then we have here Paul, the Damascus Road, the very beginning of chapter 9. We have... Uh, There's a couple things from this chapter, a couple themes that I want to bring about and discuss. And I, if you walk away from anything in this sermon today, I hope those two things come across. Uh, first off is God changes lives. We can't do it. It has to be God. We, we, put, our hand, we put ourselves in His hands. But it's God who does it. God changes lives. And we see this in the very beginning. I notice a change. we see a changed life. We see someone from arresting Christians to being arrested by Christ. Saul started out going around arresting anyone who claimed to be a Christian. Meanwhile, Saul, uh, verse says here, I. Uh, uh, verse 1, meanwhile Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He was still doing it. Just going out, breathing out threats and murders uh, and, and, and arresting people and put them in prison. All ages, mind you, young and old, it didn't matter to him. But God had a plan for Saul. Isn't it interesting the surprising uh, people God chooses? Here, Saul is an enemy of Christ, and God hunted him down. But the Bible is full of surprising choices. You have Abraham chosen by God. Abraham was raised in a, in a pagan family, in a pagan culture. You have Jacob, who was a deceiver, a liar. A manipulator. Jacob was a con artist. And God uh, hunted him down. Rahab. God used Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And God used her. Gideon's army. Gideon's army was just a small group of men. Very tiny compared to the tens of thousands that they were to fight. But God used that small army. Then you have David. Of all the men to choose to be king, David goes and picks shepherds, which is, was considered the lowest form of occupation in that society, and then goes to the family, and the family has all these sons, and God chose the youngest, the smallest, the most inexperienced. Surprising choices, and here God does it again. He breathed out murders and against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any man or woman who belonged to the way, now the way was what they called the Christian church, people of the way, early on, that he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem 
As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he's going down this road to Damascus to arrest more Christians. And this blinding light shines forth and knocks him to the ground. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He had no idea who this was. A lot of times people have no idea how God is working in their life. They don't see it. Time after time, God gives someone opportunity. I knew this lady, Phyllis. Phyllis, as a, as a young adult in her 20s, decided to turn away from God and went into a life of deep, deep sin. A friend of my mother's. And there were many times she was she should have been dead. She got hit by a car. She got real sick. She there was all something came very close to death's door, only to be pulled back. And I remember one of the last times I'd seen her in person when she got hit by the car. I said, Phyllis, God is trying to get your attention. And she said, I know. But she refused to do anything about it. Who are you, Lord? And, G and, and, and he said, I, I am the G I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now that's a significant statement. I want you to to think about that. Saul, as far as I know, had never met Jesus. Who was he persecuting, Christians? Jesus took it personally. Jesus took notice when his people are hurt. When you're hurting, Jesus notices. I want you to say, God notices. That's the second theme in this chapter. First thing is God changes lives. Second is God notices what you don't think he notices. People have been persecuted and Jesus is saying, I am the one who you are persecuting. Jesus feels your pain. There's, there's no weakness he does not feel no sickness that he can't heal. No sorrow that, that he doesn't share every moment we're under his care. I didn't write that. I can't take credit for it. But it's a good truth. You see, when you stand for Christ, he stands with you. The one you're persecuting here applied. 
And then Jesus said, but get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men were traveling with him, uh, stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Now that word speechless, it's more than the, the, the meaning of that word is more than just they didn't say anything. They couldn't say anything. That's what that word infers. They were so scared, they couldn't even speak. God changed in the business of changing lives. Notice we have from storming, from storming out of Jerusalem to stumbling into, into Damascus. Saul went from storming out of Jerusalem to stumbling into into Damascus. Uh, The next verse, verse 8, Then Saul got up from the ground and threw his, although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So he took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was this all-powerful guy. And by the way, interesting uh, historical fact, uh, an early historian around 160 A.D., so still pretty early, wrote a history of, of, of Saul and estimated he was about four and a half feet tall. The average person at the time was about five feet tall. Or no, five four, something like that. Five four. Um, so he was about ten inches shorter than the average person of that time. So he's a pretty short guy. But you might just this guy probably was raised being tough. Not gonna put up with anybody, right? That's how I kind of see Saul. Because he got picked on, because he was the smallest kid. I could see he probably knocked the bigger kids out. And and he and he and he went to school to be a Pharisee and he studied hard and he, he was a very smart guy, did well in school because he was seen. As he was young, he was a few years younger than Jesus. So he had just started his career as a Pharisee. And I think he saw this uh, Christian Christianity thing as a way to make his mark. And, and be on the fast track to be the, the next high priest. And so he, he, was, he was cruel. In Acts 26, he talked, he admits to torturing people to get them to blaspheme. So this is the kind of man, he storms out of Jerusalem, but then Jesus encounters Christ, changes everything. Now he's stumbling, he's blind, he's got to be led into the mass. He has to trust in the kindness of others. He was unable to see. Verse 9, he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. God's in the business of changing lives. 
He changed Saul from, from trying to destroy the message to being devoted to the message. Saul began to fast and pray. And notice it was three days. That was interesting. Very much along the lines of Jonah and the whale, right? Jonah and the whale. Jonah was in the whale for three days. Sometimes, well, it, it's good, especially in, in significant life events, it's good to get along with God. I try to do that at least once a year, just me and God for a few days. Sometimes God forces you to get alone with him. Our brother Hestrom, very busy man, when he was conference president, he would travel thousands of miles each week and go, 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 go. And then he got sick and he was stuck in bed for a while. And he believed that that was God forcing him just to, to rest, to take a break, and just spend time with the Lord. God forces us to do that. And God forced Jonah and God forced Saul. Couldn't see three days and uh, three days, didn't eat or drink, just spend time in prayer with the Lord. Just to think about the truth, the reality. His whole world was rocked. So God put him in a timeout. And made him, you know, forced him to think about things. And that's what happened. Verse 10, there was a disciple in the, the Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he called for Ananias to, to do something for Saul. And we don't know anything about Ananias except this one act. Nothing else is said. We don't know what else he accomplished in life. We don't know anything about him. History is full of God using supposed nobodies to have great impacts on God's kingdom. Ananias is just one of them. You ever heard of John Stoppitz? He's the man who helped lead Martin Luther to Christ. How about John Eglin? He was instrumental in the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Edward Kimball was just a shoe salesman, but he also happened to be D.L. Moody's mentor, spiritual mentor. Mordecai Ham, he was a little-known evangelist. Never made a big name, but one night he preached, and a man by the name of Billy Graham prayed and gave his heart to the Lord. 
We never know how God might use us to touch a life. And we don't, there's nothing to say that the life we touch might in turn touch millions. Yield yourself to the purposes of God, whatever the Lord wants you to do. Don't worry about what visible fruit show up in your life. Just be satisfied with the fact that you are doing what is pleasing to the Lord. And be faithful when He calls. So there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and God called him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. Notice that Ananias was ready. He didn't say, Hang on. He didn't say, I'm not, you know, not now. I have a lot of people, I know a lot of people that will tell me, Pastor Daryl, I know there's something in my life I need to change, I need to correct, but not yet. I know I need to do something, uh, but, but not right now. They know what the Lord wants them to do. God is calling them to do it, and they're not ready. When God, if God points out something in your life that you know you need to change, you need to do, you need to go, whatever it may be, but you know it's God, just say, here am I. Verse 11, get up, God said, get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he has been praying, since he is praying there. A couple things in this verse I want to point out to you. First off, notice God told Ananias, get up and go, and we're going to see in a second that Ananias got up and went. We've seen this before, haven't we? Recently, other examples of Christ's followers, God said, go, and they went. And also notice once again this theme that I've been talking about, that God cares. Notice that God says he is praying. Go do this. Why? Because he's praying. Notice that God noticed that Saul was praying. And did something about it. Always know this. That whatever God did with Saul. God does with us. And God hears. And knows. That you're praying. And you may not get an answer right away. Just trust the Lord. He's taking care of things. It may not be in your time. You may expect something to happen much faster. That's not God's way.
verse 12. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. So the Lord sent Saul's vision. Regain his sight. In verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority here from uh, the chief priest to arrest on all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, stop arguing with me. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Sometimes, well, for any Christ follower, any suffering allowed in our life is for a good reason. Verse 17, so... Um, So Ananias left and entered the house, and he placed his hands on him, on Saul, and said, Brother Saul, see, Ananias believed. God spoke, even though Ananias had heard about this guy, how he was a murderer and a horrible person. But God said, he's one of mine now. And Ananias believed that. And so he said, he called him brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road where you're traveling, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul had been saved, and now he's going to receive the Holy Spirit. And at once something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Praise the Lord. So then Saul got to work. <clears throat> Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. But all who heard him were astounded. And said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying all those who called on his name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. I wonder what proofs Saul used. Did he, did he talk about the prophecy in, in Genesis that the Messiah would be born of a woman? Did he talk about uh, how the Messiah would be the seed of Abraham and the bearer of the gospel as it says in Genesis? How about in Micah where it says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem? 
or have it in Isaiah where it says the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Maybe he talked about how in Isaiah it says the Messiah will be preceded by a forerunner, that being John the Baptist. Or maybe that um, in Zechariah that the Messiah would be born, would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Maybe he talked about how in Psalms 69 it says the Messiah will be rejected by his own people. Or in Zechariah it says the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Or maybe in Psalms again it talks about the Messiah's crucifixion. Or that lots would be cast for his garments. Or in Psalms how the Messiah would cry out from the cross. Or in Psalms again, Psalm 34, it says that his legs would not be broken. We could go on and on. All these prophecies, 700 years or more before Christ. <coughs> but it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 22, that he confounded the Jews by proving that this one is the Messiah. After many days, verse 23, after many days had passed, the Jews, uh, they couldn't beat him by debate. So they did what they planned for, they did what they did for Jesus. They conspired to kill him. But their plot, I, uh, their plot uh, became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples, Saul had already had a, developed a following, took him by night and lowered him into a large basket through an opening at the wall. So he escaped. They were they figured the only way to get out is through the main gate. A lot of the ancient cities were surrounded by a giant wall for safety, right? And then you have a big gate. One way in, one way out. Well, they found another way out. And then Saul gets into Jerusalem. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he, he tried to associate with the disciples. He tried to go find them, hang out with them. Hey, what's up, brother? But they were all afraid of him. Can you see this? He's trying to visit them, and they're, they're, they're running away. They did not believe he was a disciple. But in Barnabas comes into the picture. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to them and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. You know, there's a story about Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was the first uh, black man to play Major League Baseball. And while he broke baseball's color barrier, he faced jeering crowds in every stadium. 
While playing one day in his home stadium in Brooklyn, he committed an error. He messed something up. And his own fans began to ridicule him. And he stood on second base humiliated while the fans jeered at him. Then, so there, can you imagine, he's, he's embarrassed. He's already having a hard time because of, of the, what he's going to deal with from racist people. But now his own fans are, are giving him a hard time because he made a mistake. And then, at that moment, shortstop Pee Wee Reese came over and stood next to him at second base and put his arm around him and just looked at the crowd. Can you see that? He faced the crowd and the fans grew quiet. Robinson later said that that arm around his shoulder saved his career. Not just telling others, hey, I support this guy, and getting them to shut up, but letting Robinson know, hey, you've got somebody on your side. You are not alone. That's what I see happening with Barnabas. Barnabas put his arm around Saul and let him know, hey, you're not alone. And he went to bat for him. Sometimes we need to be out with each other. Encourage each other. You're not alone. We're here for you. I would love to be a Barnabas in this life if I achieve anything. Verse 28, Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. And they couldn't outwit him, so then they tried to kill him. But when the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Paul, or Saul, soon to be Paul, called Paul, was going back home. I want to miss that significance of that. He was sent home, and, and, and most scholars believe it's anywhere from 7 to 10 year time frame. Remember, he was still kind of a young guy. So he, needed, he still needed to grow. He still needed to figure things out. And so he goes home. Back home to his family, his old friends, the guys he went to school with, the village, the, village, the people that he grew up with. But now he was a Christian. I don't know what, all I know is that Saul... Obviously, we know pretty certainly matured spiritually over that time, grew in the Lord, waxed strong in wisdom and the spirit. I like to think that his heart during that time 
went through a hardening process for the Lord. When I first joined the military, my first 11 years, God had not called me to the ministry yet. I just I was learning what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world. And I was a little un- uncertain of myself. And I was around a bunch of roughnecks who like to go partying every weekend. And 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 didn't think much of anybody who 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 read the Bible. But by the end of that 11 years, I didn't care what anybody else thought of me. I was going with God. And then that's when God called me to preach. I believe God does that for us. Puts us in situations where we can just grow. Young people, don't try to figure out what your life mission is. I was talking to one of the guys in the military that's gone now. He was trying to figure out what what God's plan might be for his life. And I and I try and and actually military guy and somebody else I um trying to figure out what God's plan is and I tried telling both of them if you're trying to live for the Lord, you can't mess up his plan for you. It's impossible because God knows we're dumb. So he's going to have things fixed. So it just happens. It falls in place as long as we follow his leading. So just relax. Take advantage of whatever opportunity God affords. Enjoy life. Help others. Bless others. Trust in the Lord. Learn whatever lessons God reveals in your life. Apply those to your life. Change your behavior based on that. Become more like Christ. Saul went back to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and encouragement of the Holy Spirit and increase it increased numbers. So the church is growing, right? Or as we wrap up today's chapter, we have a, a, a we switch characters. We're, we're Saul's doing his thing. Now we come back to Peter real quick. Peter was traveling from place to place, and from this, and I'm gonna. It's getting a little late, so I'm going to try to make this short and concise. Um, in these last few verses, 32 through the end of the chapter, we see example, we see characteristics of a life God uses. Characteristics of a life God uses. If you want God to use your life, maybe you can look at some of these characteristics and see how they match up with yours. So, life God uses, verse 32, Peter was traveling from place to place. He also came down to the saints who lived in in Lydda. And so he's busy. Life God uses a life of ministry. You're doing stuff for others. You're busy being a blessing 
and helping others. Verse 33, he found a name named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter represented a life of humility. He wasn't too good to be around people who weren't the best dressed, you know, had the best jobs. This is Peter. He's in charge of the early Christian church. But he knows about this guy who's been paralyzed for eight years. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Hey, you're healed? When he, immediately he was put to work. Make your bed. And immediately he got up. When God does stuff for, for us, he expects us to, to use it to get to work. So all who lived in, in Lydda and, and, and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So people saw this healing and said, well, Jesus did this. I believe in him. And they turned to him. Verse 36, in, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. In those days, she came sick and died. After washing her, they placed her... Oh, Sorry, in a room upstairs. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard Peter was there and sent two men to him who begged him, don't delay in coming with us. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs. And all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So she did a lot of things. She, she was available to others. She was available. And, and Peter was available. He came and talked to the people that were suffering. Verse 40. Then Peter sent them to all sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning to the body said, Tabitha, get up. Notice a life used by God is a life of dependency upon God. Don't do it. Peter didn't try to raise up Tabitha on his own. He knelt down and he prayed to God, the life, the giver of life. She opened her eyes and saw Peter and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. And he called the saints and widows and presented her alive. A life used by God is a life of productivity. He produced. Tabitha produced a lot of things. Made a lot of things for people. I fully expect to die before Missy does. So I won't see this. But I expect when Missy passes on. That people will go. Look what Missy's made. They've made me, Missy made this for me. These blankets and these hats and these things that she's made for us. And Tabitha was that way. She was a woman who, who made things to be a blessing. She was productive, used by God. Verse 42, this became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
And Peter stayed on many days in Joppa. Oh, Peter stayed on many days in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Um, I do want to point out that it's interesting. Leather tanners were considered ritualistically unclean by the Jewish people. And that's going to play into our story coming up for next week. So it was not appropriate from, from a Jewish perspective, it was not appropriate for Peter to be staying there. But a life used by God, Peter was, he had other things, I'm sure he had a lot of things to do, by the way. He was in charge of the baby Christian church. But he decided to stay on there for a few more days. He was flexible. So a life used by God, is a, as we see here from this story, is a life of ministry, a life of humility, a life of availability, a life of dependency, a life of productivity, and a life of flexibility. May our lives reflect that life because I want to be used by God. Praise the Lord. Let's stand. Thank you for joining us. If you liked this podcast, then hit the subscribe button. Also, take some time to rate us. Feel free to check out our website at ServantsHeartChapel.org and you can email us at ServantsHeartChapel at gmail.com. Thanks again and have a blessed week.